Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, my name is Itamar Mann and I'm your host today at the New Books and Law channel. Today I have the special pleasure of speaking with Odette Linau whose new book, Rethinking Sovereign Debt, Politics, Reputation, and Legitimacy in Modern Finance, just came out out with Harvard University Press last month. At the center of this important book is a really interesting puzzle, which is also extremely pertinent to this particular historical moment. Professor Linau asks why, after overthrowing an authoritarian and unrepresentative regime, are post-revolutionary governments expected to repay debt incurred by the previous regime? It turns out this question has really interesting theoretical and practical implications. The book thoroughly reexamines the implications of the existing presumption and ultimately rejects it. Professor Linau is an associate professor of law at Cornell Law School, where she writes and teaches her students about international economic law, international organizations, bankruptcy, and political and legal theory. She has a JD from New York University and a PhD in political science from Harvard. So Odette, are you with us? I am. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's really um, my pleasure to do this, and I'm happy you were able to be here. Um, so uh, can you start off perhaps by telling us uh, what led you to write this book? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you say, I'm kind of interested in the general puzzle, the general question um, of why we expect states, regardless of the circumstance, to repay the debts of a previous regime. Um, and I call this the repayment norm, right? Um, and I'm interested in this, I became interested in this because a lot of legal scholars were writing about how maybe this isn't actually the right approach, how maybe we want to think of an alternative approach, an approach that says in some circumstances, after the overthrow of a regime, um, you might actually consider debt cancellation, right? And so this is an approach associated with what's called the doctrine of odious debt. Um, and this is the idea that... Um, if a previous regime incurred debt that was not with the consent of the population and also not for the benefit of the population, then maybe that debt should not be repaid, right? Um, and the response to that has been, well, we can't possibly allow such an alternative rule to develop because uh, 
that would go against sort of the general market principle, the general market expectations of debt continuity, that debt should be repaid under all circumstances. Uh, and that, that market rule, the repayment rule, tends to be associated with um, ideas of reputation, right? That, that there's no other way to organize capital markets because if we did an alternative approach, an odious debt approach, that basically uh, countries would not be able to borrow on capital markets. And so I, I wanted to think a little bit more seriously about the extent to which this is really true, this is really required by theory, um, and really kind of has been expected in historical practice. And I find that, that actually that's not the case, that both the theoretical underpinnings of this norm, of debt continuity, um, and of the standard repayment norm, and also even historical underpinnings in the last 20th century are actually more variable than we have, um, than we have assumed so far. Yeah, that's really interesting. Was there any uh, kind of um, biographical or personal reason to, to start out with this um, extremely exciting project? Well, yes. I mean, in some ways. Um, so I actually grew up in Indonesia. Um, my mother is Indonesian, and so I was born there and I grew up there. And I came to the States for college. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen. My father's American. Um, but I was very interested in some of the discussion uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s in Indonesia uh, about the fall of Suharto. So, um, so General Suharto had been in charge of Indonesia for about 30 years when his regime was overthrown in 1998, um, giving rise to sort of a more democratic regime. And, uh, you know, Indonesia had developed considerably over the course of the Suharto regime, but much money had also been lost to corruption and waste. Um, and so there was some discussion in Indonesia about, well, to what degree should we be paying all of this? Um, ultimately, Indonesia did sort of accept the basic repayment norm, as most countries do, um, but that kind of was in the back of my mind thinking about this. And then the discussion around uh, odious debt and legitimate debt really kind of came to the fore again in 2003 with the uh, overthrow of the Hussein regime, Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. Uh, and this is where you have really sort of a resurgence of writing about debt legitimacy and odious debt among American legal scholars. Um, you know, this discussion had sort of been in the background and had been present, especially among scholars sort of sympathetic to the developing world and developing country scholars, but this sort of uh, took it into the American Legal Academy. And, and so I was interested in thinking about that legal scholarship, but sort of bringing it, bringing it into conversation with uh, a larger kind of more interdisciplinary um discussion in political science and economics about the requirements of reputation and what's really actually required for a functioning international capital market. So it definitely comes from a place of, of personal interest and also just sort of general concern with what is uh, you know, fair and, uh, and I guess, <laughs> most uh, enhancing of the public good in the international yeah. arena. And in, in that uh, uh, post-2003 Iraq moment, um, I guess the, the conversation was a lot about um, what should uh, the Iraqi people have to do uh, with regard to Saddam Hussein's um, debt. And I, I'm reading here a really interesting quote from the Financial Times that you start the book with. And you, mm -hmm. um, you, you write that um, Financial Times um, says uh, the following Thing. Instead of embarking on a theological discussion of whether the debt that contracted by Saddam Hussein is legitimate, creditors should swiftly reduce the country's debt service ob obligations to, man to manageable, manageable proportions. And you really take up 
um, this idea that there is kind of a, a theological discussion of, I guess, the concept of sovereignty that is uh, basically meaningless. And you probe um, that assumption and you try to contradict it. Uh, could you explain that a little? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so that's exactly right. So, so if some of the debt activists and legal scholars were saying, well, uh, you know, why should the Iraqi population have to repay Saddam's debts? And they had said similar things about South Africa, right? So why should um, the African, the indigenous African population have to repay apartheid-era debt? Um, and the response from the financial community was something like that, right? Well, why are we having this purely theoretical, purely philosophical discussion about what what is the nature of sovereignty? What is the nature of politics? That's that's real kind of politics and theology, and we're not interested in that. We're sort of pragmatic, uh, you know, hard-headed financial people, and this is we have to think about how rules work in the in the real world of, of international finance. Um, and I thought this was very interesting, right? This escape from or attempted escape from politics and political theory, because it seemed to me basically impossible, right? At the center of this whole idea of sovereign debt and sovereign reputation is the idea of sovereignty, right? So you can't have an understanding of sovereign debt without an understanding of sovereignty. It's at the center of the concept itself. Um, and so it seemed interesting to me that you have this concept of sovereignty, which is one of the most politically controversial concepts in you know 20th century history, maybe in all uh, legal and political history, and that that this inherently political concept at the center of this financial arena has not been investigated. Um, and so I started to think a little bit more about this, and it seems to me that there's no way to have an, a concept of sovereign debt or a concept of sovereign reputation, really, without understanding the concept of sovereignty. So why is that the case? Um, well, in order to say, look, um, this is a sovereign debt, um, and all future populations, right, even if it's 20, 30, 50 years down the line, have to pay it because it's the debt of a sovereign state, right, a sovereign state's debt. You have to say, well, what is a sovereign state? And I think that there are two kind of ways that you can think about it. One way is a way that I call, it's something I call a statist concept of sovereignty. And this is the concept that um, a sovereign state, is capable of entering into external obligations and so also in, internally controlling its population just by virtue of the fact of its sort of brute physical control, right? Um, the fact that it has control of the state is sufficient to give the government power to enter into, into external uh, contracts that bind future generations, right? So that's one idea of sovereignty. Um, and this is the idea of sovereignty that basically allows uh, financiers and creditors and, and us more generally to say, Okay, it doesn't matter if you've had a major regime change from a dictatorial to a democratic regime because it's all the same state because we don't care about the internal uh, ways of ruling the state. We just care about the fact that the state is ruled, right? Um, so that's one approach. But there are alternative approaches that also exist, and I call these alternative approaches non-status approaches. And these non-status approaches um, are approaches that say, no, actually, we really care about um, what the internal dimension of rule is, right? What the relationship of the government is with the underlying population. Um, and so some of these non-statist ideas of sovereignty are democratic sovereignty, right? Um, where you think that a state is really only legitimate um, if it has the consent of the underlying population, right? Um, or constitutional sovereignty or some kind of basic rule of law sovereignty, right? Where you think the state is only legitimate to the extent that it's following its own internal laws, regardless of 
uh, whether those internal laws are, are, are democratically based or not. Um, and so depending on the type of theory of sovereignty you adopt, you're going to have different expectations about what's valid in sovereign debt, right? So uh, currently, you know, the U.S. and many people within the U.S. say, well, we are uh, supportive of a democratic idea of sovereignty. Well, if that's the case, um, then following a regime change, if you have a new democracy coming to power uh, after a dictatorship, you'd say, well, it makes sense that this new democracy wouldn't want to repay the debts of the previous regime um, because for all intents and purposes, this is, this is a new sovereign. This is the real sovereign, and the previous regime wasn't valid. Um, so, so I feel like the, the effort to escape this political theory uh, is basically impossible, right? So, so even the financiers that say, well, we're not going to think about political theory, we're just going to say a debt is a debt forever, right. well, that's a political theory too. Right. So I, I kind of understood from your argument, correcting me if I'm wrong, that also, not only from a kind of democratic theory perspective, but also from a pure, purely efficiency economic perspective, um, the sovereign continuity is actually probably, possibly not the best policy solution one can think of. Is that uh, a, a correct kind of understanding of, of your argument, or is that, are you not uh, making that kind of more efficiency economic claim? Um, yeah, so at least I think it's it's open, right? So, uh, so some of the concern with saying that a status theory of sovereignty that says debt is always going to be repaid, so one problem with adopting that in the international arena, as, and it has been dominant over the course of the 20th century, is, well, in that case, you're basically allowing governments and allowing rulers to borrow money on external and also internal capital markets and put it to whatever use they see fit, right? right? right. Um, and that use isn't necessarily always going to be the best use. I mean, that use might involve, uh, you know, major vacation homes, as we see uh, in the Ukraine, or, or, um, or actually purchase of... Um, military equipment to, to oppress and to control the interest right. and does it make, population, yeah. right, as we saw in a pick of Africa. Yeah. Does it make a difference if the new post-revolutionary regime is itself an authoritarian regime or a democratic regime? Sometimes it's very difficult to know at this uh, early stage after a revolution, I guess. Yeah, well, um, I mean, of course it makes a difference for general well-being. I, I am myself, even though I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to, to, to completely adopt a democratic theory of sovereignty for sovereign debt, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that uh, approach to sovereignty generally. Uh, so I think it certainly makes a difference if the subsequent regime is democratic um, or is at least committed to, um, to using funds to support public interest and support public benefit. Um, but I agree with you that it's difficult to know right away um, what a new regime is likely to be. Um, and I, you know, I want to be a little bit more careful here because I, it's, I'm not intending to say that uh, only democratic regimes can make positive investments. That's not the case at all. And we have many uh, examples, unfortunately, of democratic regimes making uh, not the great, the greatest investments, right? Um, um, so I so I don't necessarily want to say it should only be democratic regimes, but you know I just want to point out that there is a political choice in both the lending decision by creditors and in the decision of how to treat regimes once they come in. Yeah. Uh, you know, depending on, on what we think of them. That's really really uh, fascinating. Um, but uh, your book also really deeply engages history alongside this kind of more theoretical 
discussion, and you have a few really interesting historical chapters after a kind of um, exploration of the concept of sovereignty, I guess. And you start with Soviet Russia. So could you kind of um, outline what the concept of odious debt actually did um, after the Soviet Revolution? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so, so you're right that a lot of the book is actually historical Russia. Um, and the reason, I mean, maybe I'll go backward a little bit, the reason I wanted to do the historical discussion that I think is so important is that, you know, I think the theory is important, the theory is interesting. Um, I think it's important to highlight, and especially in response to the economic literature, how even understandings of reputation, right, that are supposed to be so central in capital markets, um, actually are also flexible, but also they also can incorporate uh, alternative theories of sovereignty. Right, but I think that theory was not enough. I wanted to ask, well, once you have this kind of theoretical instability, theoretical openness, to what degree has it actually been present in history? Right, so that's sort of one kind of historical question. And then the second historical question is, um, you know, if it's been present in history at certain times, what are the conditions under which a more non-state, a sort of more flexible idea of sovereign debt could emerge, as opposed to the more status insistence on debt continuity that we consider to be dominant. Um, so the historical argument, the historical kind of narrative, uh, tries to answer both those things. Um, and the two case studies that are earlier in the book, right, so one is the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, and the other is Costa Rica, um, I think are important to, to sort of highlight both of those things. I think they're important because, um, one, they highlight, first, how states can make arguments that are not status, right? Um, in terms of claiming the right to debt cancellation. Um, and also, both of them are interesting in demonstrating how creditors might also, under some circumstance, circumstances, um, accept these arguments, right, and actually be willing to make loans afterward. Um, so the Soviet Union case is interesting because it's actually considered a very important case study um, for people who argue that actually you can never repudiate debt, right? So there are a range of uh, economists and political economists that say, look, the Soviet Union repudiated the debt of the previous regime, right? So they said, look, uh, the Tsar's regime is not the same as us. Um, they were oppressing the people, and we're now the new liberating uh, communist regime, and so we're rejecting the debts of the Tsar's regime. Um, so the standard narrative about the Soviet Union so far in most of the work has said, and therefore they weren't able to float any bonds on the international markets um, because they suffered reputationally. Um, so I take a closer look at some of the kind of the historical uh, kind of background of this, of the Soviet Union and look actually at, at some of the, the bank letters and the interaction between the Soviet Union and the banks. And I think that actually that historical narrative has been wrong. Um, that the Soviet Union did have some trouble borrowing uh, after the repudiation, but it wasn't consistent across all creditors. And this is sort of another important theme in the book, that actually you can't assume that creditors are going to respond in in a uniform way to a particular debt situation. Um, in the Soviet case, after the, the repudiation, there were some creditors, especially creditors in France and in the UK, um, that had been creditors to the previous Tsarist regime that were very unhappy with the Soviet repudiation. But there were new creditors, especially in the US, sort of new American banks interested in getting into international lending that said, well, actually, you know, we think it's, we 
think it's reasonable. We don't especially care if they repay their previous creditors. And so they start, these new American banks started with short-term trade credits for the Soviet Union. Then they actually wanted to, um, to make longer-term loans to the Soviet Union. And the reason that those bonds were never floated was not because of a reputational assessment on, on the part of creditors, um, but actually because the U.S. government uh, basically got in the way and said, look, you can't make these loans, right? And we would frown upon it. Uh, with a big, big frown. Um, and so these banks backed off. Um, and the, the U.S. government basically did that for its own kind of political ideological reasons, for anti-communist reasons. So it wasn't a story about reputational assessment at all. So it doesn't support the market narrative at all. Um, in fact, if anything, it goes the other way. Right. Did the Soviet Union actually repay it, um, the, the debts of the Tsarist uh, regime to its uh, previous creditors? No, well, no. So eventually they came to agreement with the U.S. in the 1930s, but they never fully accepted it, right? And so, and so what was interesting in the negotiations is that the Soviet regime was actually willing to repay some of their debt, um, but they insisted on the principle of repudiation. They said, look, we're going to insist on the principle of repudiation, but then as a pragmatic accommodation, we're willing to repay some of that debt. Um, the Western allies said, look, we're actually willing to give you money, um, but you have to acknowledge the principle of debt repayment. Um, and so, but they, they were never able to agree. So it was part of what's interesting about this, some discussed Soviet case, um, there's such in political science literature, um, how, you know, talk about principles and legal principles is all cheap talk. And what really matters is how much money you pay. Right. In the Soviet case, wasn't, that wasn't the case, right? They kind of agreed that some amount of money was going to be repaid, right? Um, but they disagreed on the principle. And so in that case, that was, that was very different. And so the Soviet Union ended up um, not doing a traditional debt repayment, but, but the financial relations were eventually uh, you know, reconsolidated in the 1930s, and then especially in World War II when they became World War II allies against uh, you know, the central Axis powers. One thing I found really interesting in that discussion is the kind of realization that the Soviet Union was actually pretty interested, as you write, to access or to take a part in a global capitalist market. It restructured its economy kind of internally, but externally it seems to have accepted many of the assumptions of a global, a global capitalism. Do you think that is um, correct or was I kind of misunderstanding? I was curious about that. Yeah, no, um, yeah, and so, so the, so I think what you're pointing to there is how the new Soviet regime, uh, you know, certainly restructured its internal, uh, capital relations and then did repudiate the debt. Um, but in repudiating the Tsarist debt, they weren't saying, look, we reject all external capital relations. That wasn't the case at all. Um, they recognized that they needed external capital to reconstruct after World War One and after the Russian Civil War, um, and they saw external capital. Right. And you have interesting quotes from you know from someone like Leon Trotsky saying, "Well, of course we would repay our own debts, right? The debts of the Soviet Union. Otherwise, uh, basically, how could we access external capital markets? Otherwise, our reputation would be shot. We just refuse to pay the debts of the previous regime, the Tsar's debts, because we don't believe." Those are our debts, right? So it was an interesting uh, insistence on a different idea of sovereignty, but accepting the general external capital flow. Um, as to whether that was really an embrace of global capitalism, I would doubt that, right? I, I, you know, this is a general question of yeah. Soviet revolutionary theory, but 
but my guess is this is sort of a pragmatic accommodation with the understanding or with the hope that eventually the entire global system would be overturned. Right. Um, but they were willing to work within the rules of the global system, just insisting on a new form, a new idea of sovereignty that they believed was consistent with the larger flow of capital. And just one more clarification uh, questions on that question on that. Um, so is it the case that the creditor uh, would have to simply accept repudiation voluntarily? Um, this, this is, uh, of course, related to the larger themes of the book, but I think it also uh, is of particular relevance to this uh, case study. I'm wondering if, the, if there's, as in another place in the book, you write that you don't expect there to be a kind of international regulatory body to enforce um, kind of any right concept of sovereignty. That would be, uh, I think, wrong, according to your general argument. But the question then arises, is it just a kind of voluntary decision? Okay, I, I, I don't mind giving up my loan money and just uh, kind of giving it away and forgetting about it. Yeah. Um, so, so you have a couple sort of things in that question. Um, so one, you, you're pointing to, you know, one of the responses, and, you know, so the Soviet Union is just is one chapter of the book, and then I go through the rest of the, the 20th century uh, as well and sort of think about, well, this was kind of an open moment, what happened in the rest of the 20th century such that we don't have any real follow-ups on the Soviet case and also the Costa Rica case, which has a sort of similar um, dynamic. And, um, and, then, and then you're right, at the end of the book, in the conclusion, I say, you know, well, one of the ways that people think about dealing with this larger question of debt legitimacy and, and, and what should be done about it is um, a proposal that maybe an institution should be set up to say in advance, well, um, this regime is odious, and so if you creditors want to lend to it, then you should just know that uh, if the regime repudiates the debt at the end of, you know, if the regime falls, um, then you're not going to have any support from the international community and you will be in the wrong. Um, and, uh, and you're right that I'm a little bit concerned or, or, or doubtful that such an institution is going to be uh, ever in existence uh, or viable, right? Because you're basically setting up an institution under the aegis of the UN Security Council or, um, or perhaps one of the international financial institutions to pass judgment in advance on regimes. And I feel like that is going to be very difficult to set up uh, both sort of pragmatically, I'm not sure if countries are really willing to, going to be willing to sign up to it, and then also if it were set up, how do you make those judgments? And so, so I think you're right that I end up leaving a fair amount to creditors, um, and I do think creditors are capable of making these determinations, right, of saying, okay, well, look, we have a new country, um, and this new regime says that it's not interested in paying the debts, or at least these certain debts of a previous regime because they consider them illegitimate, but otherwise the country seems creditworthy, um, and so maybe we'll start making kind of new uh, investments that are moderately priced, appropriate to a new and untested regime, um, and I can see creditors doing that. So this is not necessarily to say that the creditors are going to be happy about it, or at least the creditors of the previous regime I expect will be very unhappy about it, and will use whatever uh, economic and legal power they have to sort of force a settlement that's more favorable to them. Um, and one of the dynamics I talk about actually uh, in the book, and one of the larger arguments I have, is that the degree to which 
this kind of flexibility in the debt regime might exist actually um, can depend on larger creditor structures as well as larger ideas of sovereignty that are at play at any given point uh, in the international system. And so how does this work? I think uh, you're right that the creditors of the previous regime are going to be unhappy, but to the extent that there are other creditors out there that are competitive with those previous creditors, um, they might be willing to make these new loans, right? So I don't think it's necessarily the same creditor um, or affiliated creditors, but if there are new creditors that are competitive, uh, I think that's a dynamic that can help yeah, to sure. enable this type of alternative as well, right? So I think so, so this, this dynamic of creditor competition is another important part of the story um, that I'm telling. So it would that seem like sovereign continuity or sovereign discontinuity would be a particular decision made by a particular creditor, whether private, whether public, and not a principal decision for either option. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, it could it could be both, right? It, it could be the case that particular creditors say, "Look, I disagree that this is a, a new regime and worthy of new investment." Um, Right, and and that could be uh, just a very pragmatic decision on their part, or it's possible. I mean, you can't imagine creditors actually saying, "I think this is a new regime um, that is really genuinely different from the previous regime," and so on a principle basis, I'm going to make this decision. Yeah. Um, and so it could be creditor specific. It could be kind of purely pragmatic uh, and or, or or affirmatively principled. But I think that. In any case, there is sort of a political theory in the background, uh, or you could have a larger determination by the or a large determination by the international community or by key actors in, in the international community to establish principles in one direction or another. And actually, there's been uh, an effort by uh, UNCTAD, by the UN Conference on Trade and Development, um, to to formulate. And they have formulated so principles of responsible sovereign lending and borrowing as an initial effort to kind of establish new guidelines along these lines. That's, that's all extremely fascinating, but I feel like uh, I'm um, kind of diverting towards theory and I'm missing out on some of the really fascinating historical work in the book. So I want to try to get back to that a little bit before maybe turning the theory once more towards the end. Um, why is the Costa Rica example important to your argument? What is it? What work does it do? Yeah, so it, it, in some ways it serves a similar function to the Soviet example, right? So um, so part of the larger historical argument I make is that uh, I start my story in the World War One era, and I do this because in the World War One era and an interwar period in the 1920s, you have... Um, you have a whole bunch of discussion about well, what are the new foundational principles for this new order we're going to try to develop. And so you have ideas of legitimate sovereignty that are kind of emerging, right? Um, new ideas of legitimate sovereignty. The idea that self-determination um, uh, might exist on a national level. The idea that eventually all peoples should be ruled for their own benefit, right? Um, either initially in the UN mandate system, but with a view eventually toward for independence and self-determination. So I asked, you know, I was interested in asking, well, to what degree, if you have these new ideas of sovereignty emerging in the international arena, were they incorporated in international debt? Um, and my argument is that actually the 1920s served as sort of an open moment and a, and a potential turning point for the international regime. Um, and I look at the Soviet Union case and the Costa Rica case in that context, right? Um, and then 
I talk about how that moment closed, and maybe we can talk about that later. So, so the Costa Rica case serves sort of an important um, and similar function to the Soviet Union case in demonstrating that this was sort of an open moment in the world in, in the post World War One era, um, and and also showing some of the conditions under which um, these alternative, more odious debt type ideas could emerge. So, so in the Costa Rican case. Uh, it's very different than the Soviet case. You don't have sort of a major social and economic revolution in the same way um, at all, right? So in the Costa Rican case, you have a fairly solid history of constitutional government, um, and then it's overthrown for a relatively brief two-year period by a general who basically uh, takes power, General Tinoco, and then upon the return of constitutional government, the, the new regime or the returned regime repudiates the debt and the contracts of the Tinoco regime. Right, so, so again, you have a principled debt repudiation, uh, though in a diff very different context than the Soviet Union. And similarly um, to the Soviet context, you have a degree of competition between sort of major actors and major creditor powers that seems to give space for this, this action by Costa Rica. So um, in this case, Great Britain uh, and, uh, and British subjects were the most harmed by this repudiation. Uh, and Great Britain was very unhappy with it, but the U.S. was actually a little bit more flexible, or they were a little bit more, ne more neutral on this. Um, and ultimately, this goes to arbitration, and the arbitrator is um, former president and U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Howard Taft, and he comes out uh, in favor of Costa Rica, ultimately. Um, he says that the Tinoco regime is actually the government of Costa Rica, so he doesn't deny that uh, a valid sovereign government might exist, even if it comes to power through non-constitutional, non-democratic means. But he says, even if you are the legitimate government of Costa Rica, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, right? He says that these particular contracts are not allowed because they were not for the public benefit, they were just for the personal benefit of Tinoco. Um, or in another case, they actually ended up violating the internal laws of the Tinoco regime itself. And so Taft ends up saying, Look, you don't have debt continuity in all cases, right? Um, that actually, in some cases, the debt can be repudiated, and, and this can be validated by an arbitration. Um, and and Costa Rica, like the Soviet Union, then doesn't really have problems um, with creditors on the capital markets afterwards, right? So the Soviet Union ultimately was not able to float bonds, uh, despite the fact that it might have been able to, in a given sort of a, at least the reputational interpretations of some creditors, and Soviet Union was not able to because of uh, U.S. government intervention. Costa Rica has sort of similar reputational assessment on the capital markets. The capital markets, in fact, don't really register um, this repudiation as something very serious at all, um, and Costa Rica is back on the bond markets in the late 1920s as well. Um, so it's very interesting because you have these very different cases but with kind of a similar outcome in terms of the story I'm trying to tell. Right. In, in the Costa Rica case, you make um, much use of the, the way that uh, Justice Taft considered domestic Costa Rican law. Um, what, what part of the argument does, does that fit into? Why, why is domestic law in Costa Rica important? So I think the, the, what he's presenting is interesting because... He's saying, um, he's presenting what I call a rule of law concept of sovereignty. All right, so remember at the, the beginning of this conversation, I talked about how there are um, kind of two, two rough schools of sovereignty, a status school that says, as long as you have physical control of the country, you can basically do whatever you want, enter into whatever contracts you want, and that's going to be binding on future populations. 
The opposite of that would be something like a democratic understanding of self-sovereignty, right? Um, that you can only enter into a contract and expect it to be binding on future populations if that contract, or at least if that government is democratically authorized in some way. Uh, so Trump is interesting in presenting an alternative, and, it's an, and a third alternative, uh, sort of an intermediate approach, right? And because he says, look, you can come to power and hold power through, through arms, basically. Um, but once you're in power, any action in order to be understood as a properly sovereign action has to be taken according to the actual domestic law that you've propagated. Um, and also, not just according to the domestic law that you've propagated, but it has to be uh, in the interest, in some way, of the underlying population, right? It has to be for the public benefit. Because you can't, so you can't um, borrow funds or enter into contracts with, uh, with a personal purpose. Um, so he ends up saying, well, it's not democratic sovereignty, it's not a strictly status kind of absolutist sovereignty, but it's something in between. And so I wanted to highlight that as a, as a possible alternative, the sort of rule of law sovereignty and also the kind of the public outcome, the public benefit element of legitimate sovereign action as, as alternative possibilities. Yeah. Am I correct to be thinking that uh, this particular option is, is maybe relevant, especially for developing countries, and in a way that is supposed to kind of uh, avoid the, the kind of trap or problem of kind of imposing a Western idea of democracy on the one hand, but also not giving up on accountability towards the population on the other hand. Is that the kind of balance that you see in this um, in tax decision? Yeah, yes, I do. I think that there's something to be said for his approach. Um, you know, in an ideal world, I think you'd want democratic sovereignty instituted everywhere. Um, but as a practical matter, I think incorporating that into the debt regime would be very difficult and very controversial. However, I do think that there are grounds for saying that rule of law sovereignty and sovereignty that is oriented toward public benefit um, is already sort of sufficiently present, and especially in uh, in the last couple decades, it, you, you actually might be able to say, well, tax, tax approach is, um, is balanced and also is, is maybe acceptable at this point. So I think, you know, there's much virtue in, in acceptability and sort of pragmatic yeah, <laughs> viability yeah, yeah. as well. Absolutely. I, I like that very much. So after World War II, we seem to be living in a different uh, environment. Sovereign continuity has solidified somehow, and these alternative options that you identify the Soviet and Costa Rican test cases no longer exist. How, how does that happen? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, so, so that happens for a couple of reasons. So, um, so one important reason is the change in predator structures, right? Um, so in the interwar period, you have two, um, the two things that I think are important in shaping likely outcomes here, the predator structures and also the broader norms of sovereignty. Um, are kind of a little bit more forgiving of sovereign debt, uh, or of alternative approaches to sovereign debt. And this basically disappears in World War II. So on the creditor side, what happens is the private creditors are basically scared away uh, uh, from international lending by the defaults of the Great Depression and sort of by uh, the issues surrounding World War II. So when you have the post-World War II era, you don't have competitive private creditors interacting in the same way as you did in the interwar period. Um, and so who comes up to take its place? Well, it ends up being public creditors. And these public creditors have a very different approach to 
competition, right? So there aren't that many of them. The World Bank ends up being very important for financing uh, development, especially, eventually. Um, and although the World Bank has said, well, I'm a public creditor, and so I'm going to take an explicitly public viewpoint um, and be very concerned about questions of legit legitimacy, that, that wasn't the case. And I can talk a little bit later about uh, why that actually resonated with broader ideas of soft fund. Um, but also the World Bank really wasn't competitive as a creditor in and of itself. Um, it was concerned with making loans and getting the money to make loans. So how is it going to get money to make loans? Well, the initial governments that set up the World Bank and set up these international financial institutions intended to fund them, um, but ultimately, with the very pressing financial needs of the post-World War II world, they weren't able to. So the World Bank ends up turning to Wall Street um, and to the private financial markets to basically borrow money on its own account. Um, and this is interesting, of course, because the whole reason for setting up the World Bank and for setting up these international financial institutions was at least in part because of unhappiness with how Wall Street had acted in uh, precipitating, uh, at least in the view of the U.S. Treasury, um, precipitating the Great Depression. Um, but as it turns out, the World Bank didn't have money from other sources, and so I ended up turning to the World Bank and saying, look, can I borrow money from, sorry, uh, turning to Wall Street, and so ended up saying, can, can I borrow money from these private financial markets um, to make loans to these developing countries? Um, so the World Bank ends up being very concerned with its own credit readiness and its own credit rating. Um, and Wall Street, of course, is very suspicious of making international loans and, is, and suspicious of lending to the World Bank, which is in turn going to go and make loans to some of these developing countries and some of these other countries that had defaulted on their loans to private banks in the interwar period. Um, so the World Bank goes to these countries and says, um, look, I can't make loans to you, countries, um, unless you repay or at least come to some negotiated settlement uh, on your private debts. Um, and it says this across all countries. It doesn't differentiate according to the different type of internal rule or whether they've gone through a major regime change. Um, so, for example, Indonesia really bought at this and a number of other countries bought at this, saying, look, these were debts that were... Uh, entered into by predecessors, and in some cases, the predecessors were were uh, were uh, colonial, right? So, in the Indonesian case, uh, Netherlands was uh, was a colonial master of Indonesia for some time, and so they had just fought and won a revolutionary war. And the World Bank was then saying, "Look, you're going to have to come to some agreement with the Netherlands on expropriation, otherwise, we're going to be unwilling to lend to you." Uh, and unsurprisingly, a number of countries were very unhappy with it. But the World Bank felt that it had to develop a uniform rule. That, that didn't take into consideration the internal internal politics of these countries um, in order to, to, to sort of consolidate its own reputation on Wall Street. And so the World Bank develops this rule because of its own needs, but presents it ultimately as the apolitical and neutral and responsible choice for international finance in the post-World War II era. Um, the U.S. government is a major creditor as well, but... And the U.S. government doesn't really challenge this view of the World Bank. The U.S. government is perfectly happy to let the World Bank lend. It, in fact, only goes in um, and lends for its own kind of political purposes. And its political purposes at the time are all tied up in the Cold War. So even though there's a rhetoric of democracy and democratic sovereignty, um, in fact, U.S. lending is much more along the lines of we don't really care internally whether or not you're a democracy um, or whether or not you even respect internal rule of law. It's really about whether you're part of our camp or not. Um, and so they established this new system in the post-World War II era that, that ends up being very important and that basically closes the possibilities. And I look at some case studies 
in the post-World War II era, Cuba, People's Republic of China, um, where there is an effort to repudiate debts, but there isn't the same response from capital markets that you get in the interval period. Um, and then when private lending returns in the 1970s, due to a number of factors I talk about, um, syndicated lending, global banking integration, that even though there are a number, a very large number of private creditors that get involved in international lending, it's not competitive in the same way. Yeah. Um, so that that sort of shifts shifts things as well, and 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 means that the possibilities of the 1920s don't follow into the 1970s, despite the return of private lending. Right. Um, what I found uh, kind of interesting, and what I'd like to ask you about this uh, period, is um, that your book in its entirety seems to be a kind of call for a political, an explicitly political understanding of sovereignty and political determination about what, uh, we, what we want, what we expect sovereignty to be. And in the Cold War, it seems like while the United States was not supporting democratic sovereignty, as you say, it did have a very political understanding of who it would be willing to loan to an understanding that it also was able to uh, kind of uh, tunnel or influence in, in various ways the international, the relevant international institutions, especially the World Bank. And it seems like there was actually a really kind of uh, particularistic understanding of sovereignty that seems to comport with part of what you're saying. But it wasn't, uh, it was, just wasn't the kind of uh, understanding of sovereignty that you find kind of normatively compelling. Um, I'm wondering if that's also a kind of correct description or understanding of what happened, or um, am I misunderstanding something? Yeah, so um, so the broader norms of sovereignty in the post-World War II and the, post-war, uh, and the Cold War period are, are interesting. So um, you're right that the U.S., and as I mentioned, the U.S. sort of has this rhetorical commitment to democratic sovereignty, but in practice, um, effectively operates in its own lending decisions under a statist approach, right? right? So you don't actually care what the internal form of rule is as long as you say that you're part of our bloc, we're willing to lend you money or encourage the World Bank to lend you money. And actually the U.S. ended up being more lenient than the World Bank, uh, didn't provide competition to the World Bank. The World Bank was annoyed with the U.S. for making some of the loans that it did. Um, and so... And so there's that dimension of state sovereignty, but there actually wasn't as much pressure as you might accept, ex- expect from developing countries and post-colonial countries either, right? So, so a lot of these post-colonial countries and developing countries were very uh, interested or concerned with, uh, or ideally would have liked to repudiate the, the, the debts of previous regimes or previous governments, but they weren't willing to sign up to a general program of attentiveness to internal forms of rule, right? So the approach of the post-colonial countries was not, yes, now we're going to accept and promote understandings of legitimate sovereignty in all of its facets, in sovereign debt and in other realms of international practice. Um, They actually were very protective of their own internal rule. So they didn't want external monitoring and external... Uh, questions about, well, how democratic are you? Um, how much are you paying attention to human rights? And, and we see this today. And so the post-colonial countries end up signing up to some degree to a statist approach as well. Um, and this is in post-World, post-World War II and also in the 1970s and 1980s, right? Um, when you have the return of private lending, you have developing countries, borrower countries, not remotely interested in having creditors ask questions about uh, legitimacy, right? And so, um, and so, 
internally, developing country elites were also interested in maintaining sort of a statist approach. Um, and this, this basically shapes how you have the 1980s debt restructuring as well, right? That these developing countries effectively take a statist approach, so they're very unhappy with the larger kind of distribution of power in the international system, and they're interested in changing that, but they, they speak as a block, a block of developing countries. And whenever you're speaking as a block, whether it's the creditor side or the debtor side, um, there's necessarily going to be less attention to internal divisions based on legitimacy, right? Um, and so that ends up shaping the 1980s debt restructuring, which, which as you know, ends up being sort of the important period for shaping how we think of debt restructurings going forward and how we end up defining what it means to be neutral. Um, of course, there is a political vision, a status political theory or status political assumption that goes into those debt negotiations, but because it's not identified as political as such, we kind of forget that actually that was present. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So it's kind of a, a, a denied politics in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Towards the end of the book, you kind of identify a way in which um, the kind of uh, position that you're advocating is actually emerging among certain international organizations and in various parts of the world, um, and especially, I think, in the EU, uh, it's really kind of clear that uh, decisions are made under a particular understanding of, of politics and what politics should be. Um, do, you, do you see that as a kind of uh, hopeful note towards the end of the book? Um. Yeah, I suppose so. I write, I mean, to the extent that you're concerned about questions of debt legitimacy, um, there do seem to be some uh, indications that in the post-Cold War period, right, um, so uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s, so the turn of the 21st century, things might be shifting a little bit. So, um, so interestingly, you have private creditor groups as well as public creditors like the World Bank explicitly incorporating language of legitimacy and um, sovereign rule into their own documents and into their own lending decisions. So, for example, um, the World Bank, in uh, one of its relatively recent documents, talked about an emerging social contract uh, between the population and the government. So this is quite new language um, that they would not have adopted in 1960. Um, and so they're talking about this now, and you wonder, well, if that's the case, if this is becoming a more generally accepted way of thinking about, um, you know, sovereign government, well, maybe there actually is sort of space uh, for thinking about debt in new ways. And, um, and you know, I, I, I do think that we... We are in a, a potentially new open moment here as well, um, where it's important to think about not just the theory, but also what are the sort of, what are the, the conditions under which maybe this could shift, right? If there's a broader understand a new understanding of sovereignty that might help to shift things, if there are new creditor structures, and here I'm thinking about um, the rise of sovereign wealth funds and new south south capital flows that might provide an injection of new competition uh, into capital markets. Uh, where maybe things are sort of more flexible and we could think about alternative ways of, um, of dealing with sovereign debt and, and understanding sovereign reputation. Reading that part of the book, I came across this uh, news story. It was the end of February, and there was this news story on BBC about the World Bank postponing a $90 million, uh, loan to, $90 million loan to Uganda 
because of anti-gay uh, law that it's just passed there. Um, and I kind of uh, felt, I don't know, I, I wanted to understand, I wasn't, it wasn't completely clear to me how the book uh, allows me to think about this particular case, though it was clear to me that it uh, kind of uh, actually follows some of your both descriptions and prescriptions towards the end of the book. So I'm, I was wondering if you can say something about that example in particular. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, so this is a very interesting example, right? So there's that BBC News story, and then the um, and then the president of the World Bank, Jim Kim, uh, wrote an op-ed also sort of in support of this type of approach. So this is um, descriptively very much kind of in line with the trends I'm talking about in the last chapter, where you have major public creditors, you know, the World Bank is one, and then you mentioned some European countries, and Norway has actually been in the forefront of this, um, making explicit decisions on the basis of ideas of legitimacy in some way or another, right? And so this World Bank decision is uh, based on, on a human rights violation in the World Bank's view, um, such that it's not willing to make loans. Um, so I think descriptively it very much fits into the trend. Um, I think prescriptively it's very interesting as well. You know, I I understand where the World Bank's coming from, and I'm supportive um, uh, in a way, but, but this also highlights the way in which really strong claims about legitimacy can be, um, can be divisive, right? It's a very difficult decision to make because as uh, much as I personally don't like it, there is a swath of countries uh, in the world that would agree with this type of legislation um, and would be uncertain as to whether it's appropriate for a world body like the World Bank uh, or if some institution would be set up. Uh, you know, some swath of countries would consider it inappropriate for the World Bank to be making this type of decision um, because, it, again, it's implicating well, what is the nature of sovereign debt and should it should it explicitly adopt these types of politics. Um, I think it's always adopting some kind of politics, and I applaud the sort of open discussion of politics. Um, but as to the particular choice, I, you know, I think it's it's difficult, um, especially if the World Bank wants to continue to represent the world as a whole and and wants to sort of limit the entry of alternative predators into this field. So I, I mean, it's a very very interesting case, and. and definitely sort of matching in with the trends that I'm talking about as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see how things go, um, and if, if multiple predators begin to go in that direction. Yeah, so it seems like uh, there's, a, once again, this real kind of uh, danger of, on the one hand, doing things that uh, may seem to um, enforce liberal, certain liberal values, but on the other hand, uh, losing some of the democratic aspect of these um, international institutions such as the World Bank. And I'm wondering if an underlying problem here is just, you know, the structure of the World Bank itself, as is often discussed in the context of the UN Security Council and other international organizations. Does that fit into the analysis, or is that not related? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I don't talk explicitly about the sort of uh, proposals to reform the World Bank Executive Board, the IMF Executive Board, and, and the Security Council, but to the extent that we are interested in developing um, a more uniform, uh, more kind of global understanding of legitimacy um, more generally, and also legitimate action in international finance, there is a question of the degree to which it can adopt a very, you know, historically and geographically particular uh, kind of liberal 
ideas and the extent to which we should seek to um, have a broader view, even if that broader view doesn't comport with our own personal views. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm mixed about it. I feel like, you know, this requires a lot of discussion, um, and it requires sort of open discussion. And I think the only way you're going to get to this open discussion is by recognizing the extent to which, no matter what decision, the, the extent to which the, uh, the decision you make, regardless of what decision that it ultimately is, um, is necessarily political, right? So once you've acknowledged that, then we can have that political discussion that I think we, we really should be having. Okay. This, I think, uh, might be, you know, this is such a huge discussion that we won't be able to have uh, <laughs> this podcast. Okay. I think it's a, probably a good moment to end. We took so much of your time already. No, so my towards, towards this, just uh, to end this, I would just like to thank you once again for doing this. It's sort a of great pleasure and a personal uh, kind of fascinating experience for me. So thanks for that. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.